ESPN 1420, ESPN1420.com, and the ESPN 1420 app. It's the Great Scott Show, the Great Sports Callers Open Think Tank. I'm Scott Prather, and as promised, I am joined this hour by the great Mike Detillier. He needs no introduction, but I'll give him I'll just give him one anyway. Based in southern Louisiana, editor and publisher of Mike Detillier's NFL Draft Report, which you can get right now. Learn more at MikeDetillier.com. Pro football analyst. You've heard him for years on 870. You hear him across the state. You hear him across the country. And, uh, of course, was mentored in New Orleans by the late great Hap Claudian. Buddy D, Buddy Deliberto, extensive knowledge, scouting expertise when it comes to sports and football down here in the boot. Mike, you join me every year as we get close to the draft. I appreciate you joining me this morning, man. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. In in terms of um, excitement around drafts, I always find that down here, when the Saints are drafting a little bit later, it's it's not a, look, it's it's no shocker. The excitement isn't quite as palpable. Like I think once we get like to the day before or the day of, it's there. Not to say that folks aren't excited, but I think the storylines heading into the draft for a lot of fans down here are are a little more latched on to some of the national storylines and what the Saints do. As opposed to, look, if the Saints are drafting early, that seems to be like the only focus. So my first two questions for you, Mike, is a two-parter. What do you think the biggest national storyline heading into this draft is? And what do you think the biggest Saints storyline heading into this draft is? I think the biggest national story is what will happen at the three and four spot in this draft. Uh, Obviously, the 49ers traded up for a quarterback. Um Exactly which one is in debate. Uh, When I went to print with it, uh, my intel had told me that uh, John Lynch really liked Trey Lance, uh, the North Dakota State quarterback. Uh, Obviously, over the last couple weeks, um, it's kind of swing a little bit in that Kyle Shanahan would prefer Mac Jones uh, from Alabama. So I I think that is probably – the biggest storyline, not only out west, but across the country on what happens at three. And I think once that gets settled, then what's going to happen at the fourth spot? It's unprecedented. It's only happened twice. We've started the draft with three straight quarterbacks. Does it have four? Does Atlanta, looking at this spot, say, you know what? We may never be in this position again. Let's pick us the future quarterback today and worry about our defense down the road. But, I mean, it's a difficult choice because certainly their biggest deficiencies are on the defensive side, the football. But the fourth best player in this draft, uh, well, you can make an argument, take the quarterbacks out of the mix, The best player in his draft class is Kyle Pitts, the tight end from Florida. Do you take him? And then you throw the double middle finger at everybody and say, okay, stop us now. We got Julio Jones. We got Ridley. We'll have Pitts with Ryan throwing the football. So, uh, man, three and four spot to me are the biggest national stories on where that will end up and kind of how that shakes out. In a league, I always think of this. Years ago, 
uh, Hank Stram, uh, when uh, Ditka became the coach of the Saints, Hank Stram took his place and was doing casino shows with us on 870. And uh, so I got to work with Hank. And he, he said, there's two type of teams. Um, either you got a quarterback or you're looking for one. They said, there's no in-between. <laughs> it's either you got one or you're looking for one. And I think the NFL now has emerged. And that wasn't yesterday. We're talking about this is late 90s. And so what he said back then it certainly equates even to today, that quarterback position trumps everything else. And every year it's this sort of football chess to get to that position to get one. Because there are so many teams either looking to upgrade or looking to get the young guy. And the other part I think you got to throw in is the fact that Brady sort of, Tom Brady has sort of changed the world for a lot of thinking owners who believe that you're one player away, that one guy can put his hands on a bad football team and change it sort of overnight, which is actually not true, but um, it does help. And so now you've got that element of saying, wait a minute, the, the Bucks are were a 6-10, and 7-9 team. They didn't win squat. Now all of a sudden they go get Brady and they turn that team into a Super Bowl champion? for a lot of the younger owners who didn't make their money over a long course of time, they, they, they one word that they can't spell good is patience. <laughs> they, they got zero because they've made money so quickly in other businesses. And I, I think that that Brady element along with nothing, I think gets a franchise more energized than a, a, a talented young quarterback. I, I think it energizes the fans, it energizes the organization, and it gives you hope that somewhere very quickly you can turn this around. Copycat league is a phrase we've we've heard a lot. Um, do, getting to the second part of that question, do the Saints take any approach similar to what the Bucks did, or are they kind of just confident now in this transition period to you know what we, we we trust our scouting we feel like we can make it work next year what is their approach going to be and what in your mind is the top storyline for the saints heading into this draft i think for sean payton he feels confident that Jameis winston can do it and listen he's got to say what he's got to say that this is an open competition uh, between him and Taysom, but in reality, it's it's Jameis Winston's job to lose. So um, I think they'll pick a quarterback somewhere in this draft class, exactly where I have no clue. Uh, and there's only one guy that can answer that, and that's Sean. I, I think Sean's the guy who who has the chalk in his hand. It may be said it's by committee, him and Mickey figured all this out, but in the long run, it's really, in my opinion, it's Sean's decision on what he should do. The misperception here is that Jeff Ireland, behind the scenes, uh, and he is a major part of it, 
the scouts and the scouting department along with Ireland set up a board after the season, and they give that board to Mickey and Sean. Mickey and Sean rearrange that board, and they put it how they want to put it. By their evaluation, looking at needs, looking at how they fit, everything else. So uh, the scouting department and Jeff Ireland do their job of giving the initial intel. But in the end, it's Sean and Mickey that rearranged that board. See, a lot of people, <laughs> you know, that I've seen written and talk about, they, they don't say that other part of it. But that's the reality of people that have been there, that have been involved in the process themselves, will tell you exactly what happens. So really this comes down to a decision made by Sean Payton on, on how he wants to roll with this franchise. And I think he, uh, even though Mickey's involved uh, heavily, uh, it's really Sean's call. When you look at this team today, the biggest areas of need are on defense. You're paper thin at corner. You're paper thin at linebacker. Um, and so, for me, those are the two big areas of concern. And a third area would be defensive tackle. Uh, Malcolm, I understand what you did with Malcolm Brown. Uh, I didn't think financially that was a lot of money when you traded him off. Uh, but you have a big hole there in defensive tackle, too. You do have a couple guys that have seen some playing time in Shy Tuttle and Malcolm Roach, but they've done that in a rotation. They've never been a starter, so to speak, in that position. And so to look at it, cornerback and linebacker would be, and defensive tackle would be the three spot. Uh, so uh, that's the way I would look at it. And you, you'd love to add a receiver. Uh, to the mix. Uh, they haven't drafted one. Uh, they didn't draft one last year, though Mark West Callaway, I think, is going to end up being a good player on this team. Uh, you like to add another tight end. You never have enough cover people. Never. Uh, so, cornerback, linebacker, defensive tackle. One, two, three. Across the board. Cornerback, Marshawn Lattimore. Mike, do you think he's going to have any kind of punishment? Is he going to have to miss any games from the NFL because of the off-season arrest? I would think he will. I would think he will. The, yeah. the way the NFL has done this in the past, um, even though you might not be charged with anything, <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean anything for them. And so, yeah, to answer your question, I think he will have a suspension. If it's one game, two games, who knows? Uh, but it, but it's something that got to roll through the back of your mind. And this team doesn't need just one corner. They need two. In today's game, when you play, okay, nickel coverage, I, I know it's in the 70s. The, it depend, depends on each team. Uh, some teams go to nickel like 74 to 77% of the time you in nickel. And you in dime in the high 60s, 67 to 69. So when you're a nickel corner, you three-quarters of a starter. Oh, are you going to rely on Patrick Robinson to do that? Oh, you know, didn't see a lot of playing time last year. And it's getting up in age. Who else are you going to put in that spot? P.J. 
Williams is has played the nickel, but really he's best suited to playing that dime safety. So, again, you Jenkins gets released because of money, and he goes to the Titans. So you got a hole there, and also you got a hole as a third corner. What happens if you have an injury? So you got to get a veteran, and you got to draft one real high, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, <laughs> it's a multiple position hit area uh, for this football team at cornerback. And it's at a spot now where back-to-back years, unprecedented, the numbers and the talent coming out of the college ranks, and that's going to continue at wide receiver. That you you got to match up. You can't cover forever, and you hope to get a good pass rush, but you got to be able to match up downfield. So that means you got to get a couple corners, and like I said, a veteran one and also drafting one early. Mike Dettelier, our guest, ESPN1420.com. I'm Scott Prather. You just you know, we're harping on positions of need and who they have to replace. And um, I think, Mike, in terms of tough off-seasons, I think the Texans have had the toughest for various reasons. But I think it's been very difficult for the Saints. Not that, you know, uh, we, we did mention briefly Lattimore and the off-field thing, but a lot of it's just in terms of what they had to see walk out of the building on airline drive, whether it be in free agency because they just were never going to be able to match for, say, a Trey Hendrickson, or cuts that they had to make that they probably didn't want to, but they simply had to because of how, you know, what the cap number came out to and, you know, coming off of a pandemic season and loss of revenue and everything else. Of everything the Saints lost and to this point have not replaced, and you know, Mike, I, I you follow the draft as close as anyone, and, and I know you'd agree with me that there's no way you can replace everything the Saints lost in one draft. But what in your mind, which player that they weren't able to keep around, whether it be because they were released or because they hit free agency and what elsewhere, who was the player at the top of the list that if the Saints could have just picked one of those to make sure they stick around? Is it Janoris Jenkins? Is it someone else? Who is at the top of that list in your mind? Is Jack Rabbit because he plays a position that's difficult to play. You out on an island a lot of times. Was he a bit grabby? Did he get penalized some? Yeah, but I, I you know, this is the way I look at it with him, and I've heard him sort of explain this that he wants to see how closely they'll call that in a game. So. You know, I think he sort of is testing the referees on on how tight they'll call that. And listen, a lot of corners do it. And, but I, it's no question it's Janoris Jenkins. You're talking about a guy who was a starter for you, uh, did a really good job. Uh, did he get grabby with players? Yes. But in today's game, that's going to happen, especially with a veteran corner. He is testing this official crew on how closely they're going to make that call downfield. And so, yeah, he'll get one, and then, okay, I see where they're going with this. And then he adjusts his game. But there's no question it's Jenkins uh, about it. I'm a big Malcolm Brown fan, but um, I I can get that defensive tackle. The hard thing to get is a corner, a cover corner today, and especially a rookie 
cover corner that can come in and play. Uh, man, those guys are difficult. It's a it's a big changeover from college to the pros because they let you get away with being handsy, hands-on uh, in college. They let you get away with a lot of that. In the pros, they don't. So that's an adjustment period for that. And there are guys in this draft class. J.C. Horn's a great example. Man, J.C.'s a real physical corner. He's prototypical in how you want him built. Uh, he's got good recovery speed. He plays the ball well in flight. But watch him when he plays. I guarantee that receiver ain't got his shirt in his pants but one play, that it's out. <laughs> that, he's, that he's pulled and tugged on him pretty good at that particular stage. And he's going to get called for that. Uh, that in college, not necessarily the case. So um, Corner and Jenkins would certainly be the one guy that you're going to miss the most. His expertise, his smarts, his setup skills with a defensive back. They just played with a certain swagger with him in there, you know, at Corner. You know, and, and he brought that to the table, uh, uh, you know, certainly along with Chauncey Garner-Johnson. They, they got a certain athletic arrogance, and I say that in a good manner, uh, that, listen, if you can do it, ain't bragging, you know. It, it, you know, it's bragging when you talk about it but can't do it, you know, because we live in that world, too. A lot of people talk, but they can't do what they talk about. Those guys talk. But yet they get the job done out on the field. So uh, that veteran expertise on playing corner, man, that's that's hard to replace. And you know, when you're drafting 28th overall, it's it's difficult as well. Um, you know, you got a really good one in Lattimore a few years ago, and that was 11th overall, and he actually slid. You know, most most big boards had him ranked higher. So it's 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 a tough thing to to tackle and just. You can hit on 28, Mike, but we've seen this team be back at 27, 28 and move into the draft, move up. I mean, this is a, a, a on one hand, you've, you've got the cap situation in New Orleans. So having a player on a rookie, having a productive player on a rookie contract is as valuable a player as you can get in the NFL. And so knowing that the Saints have eight picks and they really need to hit in this draft – there's that side of it. The other side of it is the Saints have shown, you know, especially in the last you know, 15 years, if you want to call it, I guess we, we can't call it the Peyton Breeze era anymore. So, But when you could say the Peyton Breeze era, we'll come up with a different name moving forward. But if you look at since Sean Payton has arrived, it is, if they like a guy, they're going to move up. They're going to move up and they're going to get him. Is the approach any different in this draft? Could you see the Saints moving up in the first round? And do you think they'll ever move back in a draft like they did back in 20 uh, in 2006 quite a few times. Sean's always been aggressive about a player he wants. The flip pancake part of that is the one area this football team is going to be different than it was a year ago is veteran depth. I think <clears throat> you were fortunate, even despite losing Jenkins and trading Malcolm Brown and a Josh Hill, and um, Man, you had to cut loose Quan because of his money. 
and and losing Trey was that you you had a veteran and you had a veteran presence depth wise on this football team. You may not be able to do that this year because of money. So the more picks you have, the better off you are. Because now you if you hit, you got rookies at football minimum wage for at least three years. So that there's a little bit of balance with that. And the other part, <clears throat> and I got told this by a general manager who's with a pretty good football team, his deal is, okay, when you pick anywhere from 24 back, who wants to drop that far? Okay, what team in the teens want to pick 26th? So as he explained to me, I can get on the phone and call a team up and say, okay, you're picking 18th. We'd like to get a player there. Okay, where are you picking 27th? Okay, what what are you going to give us in return, <coughs> capital-wise? And like you said, they want a king's ransom. You know, that that's a far drop in, in round one. And he said, I think most of these trades will happen with teams in the top 20. <clears throat> in essence, teams trying to maneuver up in there because then you know you have a fairly early second-round pick you're going to be getting into. As the draft gets later, it's more about, okay, at 28, we got a group of players. If we slide to 33 or 34, one of those guys is still going to be there. Let's trade back and get us an extra pick or two. So I think the yin and the yang of it is to trade up from 28 to get into the teens is a difficult chore because nobody, oh, I say nobody, very few want to drop that far. So is this the year you see this team say, you know what? We, we got a group of guys. Let's trade this thing back. And, and there, maybe there's somebody there that a team who picks in the top couple, three or four, in round two would want and think maybe they may not get there and, may, and let us get an extra pick. And it helps us uh, to build our depth uh, on this football team, which is going to look different this year. You, you're not going to see all these veteran guys. You're going to see a lot more younger players. That's not a bad thing. If you got good young players, but you know, I think the last three years we've maybe been spoiled a little bit with having some pretty good depth across the board at certain positions that you're not going to be able to afford to do this year, just because of salary cap reasons. Right. I think the salary cap didn't affect the core of your football team. That stayed in place. What it's going to affect is if you got an injury. There's no injuries today. So, you know, for most people, oh, that's not a big thing. <laughs> it's not a big thing until you get somebody hurt. Or oh, what happens on special teams? Uh, that, that's the other part because it becomes a bit of a domino. Uh, you have a guy who's maybe a good number two safety or a good number two linebacker. Because of an injury, now he moves up to the starting lineup and he's no longer on special teams. Okay, you got to pull him off of there. 
then now you've got to find a guy that can take his place. So um, I think that's going to be the big story Saints-wise of looking at it throughout the years with Sean Payton. They've never been in this spot before where money's really tight, very tight. And the fact that you won't be able to go out and maybe get that veteran guy like you've done in the past at positions across the board. And that's why the draft has become more and more important for them this year because of that element that you're going to have to rely on young players or players last year you had on the developmental squad to come through for you. Mike Dettilia, our guest, ESPN 14. I, um, I just think if, if you hit in this draft, you see a lot of players on the field right away. Now, the first round is always going to get the most focus, no matter what. You look at what the Saints have done in the second and third round in recent years, you're talking about all pro-type talent. And, 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 you know, and, and if not all pro talent, really good quality starters Eric McCoy, Alvin Kamara, Michael Thomas, Trey Hendrickson now elsewhere, just to name a few. Um, but when you're a first-rounder, Mike, you are, some would say, graded on a curve. Um, I think you could use the word graded on a curve in any round. It's just a different kind of curve, right? If you're, if you're taking in the seventh round and you have great production, um, it's kind of like you're going to be celebrated a little more than if you're you know, the second or third overall pick and you're as good as everyone thought you were going to be. This is my my um, <clears throat> my last Saints question for you, and then I, yeah, I have some other questions regarding the draft and you know some local products. But this isn't so much a draft question, Mike, as it is Marcus Davenport. Is he the Saint that is under the most pressure to produce this year? And if it's not him, who is it? And if it is him, who's number two on that list? Because I I look at you know what he can be and you see flashes of it but I look at what he has been in reality and when you not just when you're a first round pick but when a first round pick in another year is given up to move up to select you there's just a certain amount of pressure and a grade with a curve from the fans and whether coaches will admit it or not I think from the coaches as well um and and they they just desperately need him to perform big this year, Mike. So is he number one on your list in terms of most pressure to perform for the Saints this year? And, and if he is, who's number two? No, number one is Jameis Winston. Well, Okay, he's following the best, the most productive, and the greatest football player to ever wear the black and gold. Some big moccasins. I don't care how, how mentally tough you are or how talented you are. Uh, there's been a lot of guys kind of fall on the pale, not being able to do that when you come behind one of the greatest of all time. And so, and he understands that, you know, that, that he has got that spotlight on him. Uh, fair or unfair, that's, that's life. You know, if you're in another business somewhere where you've been wildly successful, uh, from 2006 up until today, and the CEO retires, and you take over. Tell me that you're not going to feel some pressure. If you follow somebody that's in the radio business that has been number one in the rankings at that time slot from 2006 till today, wouldn't you feel pressure? Immensely. I you might not say it, but you do. 
in the back of your mind you do. I don't care what type of confidence you have. That That is going to weigh on Jameis because he is not only carrying the weight of himself and he he's certainly got a book on the type of player he's been, but also you following a guy that has been one of the all-time greats. And sometimes it's worked out and sometimes it hasn't. Uh, but it's very few times somebody comes right behind the legend. That's why, can you imagine if you a head coach following Nick Saban at Alabama? Can you imagine no. that type pressure? No, no. Man, I mean, that, you, man, man, ain't nobody want to talk about no 10 wins. Sure. 10 wins? Man, we're talking about national championships. That's why you look at that list of guys that tried to follow the bear. And the bear left, and the program was good, but it, it had slipped maybe a little bit from being great to good, to very good. And so now you see why the pressure's on Jameis. I, I think Davenport is certainly the number two guy uh, on that list because of the fact you gave up a lot to get him. He's playing a signature position. The guy that got drafted in round three was wildly productive last season. And Marcus has had one injury after another after another. And I can't explain it, why guys get hurt. Um, I wish I could, but I've seen it so many times. Kind of one injury follows another, follows another. And And you knew when you brought him in. He was a little bit of a project player. It was a guy who was a wide receiver in high school. Frank Wilson moved him around a lot at, at UT San Antonio, and so would I. Because I don't want to always play him in one spot, because then I'm always going to have double team blocks. But I'm going to move him around a little bit. In the NFL, man, what? <laughs> They might do that to some great player. Man, come on, Rook, you got to prove to me how good you are. So he would be the number two guy because of the volume of what you had to give up to get him and the fact that this is sort of out of his control, but Trey was so productive, you know, a defensive end. And, okay, that third-round pick guy did it. How come you can't? And – um Pete Jenkins told me this a couple summers ago. We were all talking at the Louisiana line camp, and he said, uh, you know, there's guys, there are guys come in this league that are finished carpenters as far as linemen are concerned. Yeah, you tell them what to do, and they can do it. And he said, there are other guys that are helper carpenters. They go do a little bit of the dirty work so the helper carpenters look good. And he said, you know, sometimes that helper carpenter, he's got to learn his craft by setting up somebody else to make a big play. And then he, he's got to do it when they set him up. And I look at Marcus Davenport. I think he's been a pretty good helper carpenter. He's been a guy that's set up and opened things up for other guys. But now it's, this is his chance to be the finished carpenter. And so there's a difference. You might have on that W-2 carpenter, but there's a difference between being a helper carpenter and a finished carpenter. 
And right now, Marcus Davenport, he's a helper carpenter. He, he has not become that finished guy. And I think this is his opportunity to do so. But you, you carting around the pressure of being a first-round pick that's always there, but also you got a lot of capital that they moved to get you. And the guy that just left, he finished with double-digit sacks. So everybody's going to say, well, what happened here? You know, what happened here? So um, I, I wouldn't put him at the number one spot just obviously because of the quarterbacks, which we haven't never been through since 06. And, but, you know, Davenport's certainly a guy that's going to be under a heavy microscope uh, be, because of that and because of what Trey was able to do on the field last year. No question, Mike, to tell you our guest. And, you know, yes, Winston's number one. I think with it's weird in that I think right now the fans, and I, I'm, I guess I'm focusing more on them, their focus more is on Davenport has to do this. And I think they all in their right mind know Winston is not Drew Brees. But you know as well as I do, once season starts and you've been used to one thing, it's kind of like, wait a minute. I mean, it's – like, the bar is so high. I've always said, Mike, and I know you agree with this, in sports and probably at the quarterback position more than anywhere else, you never want to be the guy replacing the legend. Nope. You always want to be the guy replacing the guy replacing the legend because, uh, again, talking about grading with a curve, it's just – it's it's uh, James could go on, have a, a nice career with the Saints, and, you know, if he doesn't set records and win a Super Bowl – it's just not going to be good enough for a lot of people, even if it's really productive and good. Um, it's just a, it's a tough thing. It's not impossible. But I think people bring up, you know, the situations where it worked out with teams a lot more often than they bring up all of the situations where it didn't. Because more times but than not, longer, Mike, it just doesn't it, it's, work. It's a longer list of guys that haven't done right. it. Right, much longer, yeah. It's, it's, it's five or six times longer. Yeah. So, it, you know... He, but he he gets it. I mean, you know, he's been here long enough. He understands. The first time he's going to get out on that field and throw a couple of interceptions, he's going to hear it from the fans, big time. Oh yeah. Uh, about what you know what they expect and the consistency. Drew did it, and again, Father Time is undefeated and untied for a reason. You know, he he walks the mountain, you know, and and he caught him. He caught Drew like he catches everybody else. Uh, I had this long conversation. Uh, God bless her. She passed away in the summer, but Gay Culverhouse, uh, she was a frequent guest with her, one of the best guests we had. Now, I used to always tease her that, you know, we got like a 10, 12-second delay, but with her it was like a 28-second delay because <laughs> she was colorful um, with her wordings on things, and she caught me a couple times on the air. Uh, with a couple things, because, you know, she didn't realize, I mean, at times that, you know, it wasn't a conversation between us. It was just, you know, we on the air, Gay, you got to be careful. Gay Coverhouse, her dad, Hugh Coverhouse, owned, was the original owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, she gave up a career in education to become president of the team, and she stayed in that position. Uh, her father passed away, and then Hugh Jr. and her actually sold the team. But she stayed involved in the NFL with a player uh, 
she was involved with player rights for uh, benefits health-wise, uh, was one of the few people that testified in front of Congress about it and in an unusual manner because she was on the player side. You know, and this was a lady who owned the team. And yet she was testifying that she felt as though the players should get better representation. She also was involved with networking uh, that, you know, they would go to her and ask her about people they should hire or get rid of or whatever. And she gave her opinion, which took you all of about two seconds uh, to figure it out. She she either liked somebody or she didn't. But she um, was very close with the Glazer family. And she had told me this last year when the Saints picked him up. She said, Mike, I, I'm not really sure what Sean – she said, I like Jameis, to be honest. She said, I think that he's so physically talented. But she said, you know, the difficult thing is when you that big and that strong and you've done it a certain way for so long, how can you adjust your game uh, to Sean's game? And she said, what I think will happen is Sean will adjust to Jameis. She said, he's going to have to because Jameis can't be Drew just like Drew couldn't be Jameis. And so she said, what I'm interested in one day if he's got to play is, is how Sean Payton adjusts his offense to Drew, get away from Drew and adjust it to Jameis. Because she said you're going to have to put up with the fact they're going to he's going to throw a lot more interceptions than Drew Brees will. She said you can get it through your head. It, he, that's a habit that he's going to always think he can get a ball in a tight window that Drew would have shrugged off. I'm not going to throw it. I'm going to do it another way. I'm going to get it to this outlet. And I think she's absolutely right about that. I think she's absolutely right. I'm not concerned as much as I'm interested to see how Sean adjusts his offense to Jameis Winston. Because I don't think it's going to be the other way around. Now, I keep hearing it and reading about it that Jameis is going to adjust to Sean. I I think Gay's right about it. And if she was alive today, she would tell you, I told you I was right. It's I think it's going to be the intrigue of 2021. How different that this offense will look. Because the same stuff that worked with Drew, Jameis isn't quite as good at, but yet Jameis has got some traits that Drew didn't from a deep ball standpoint. I think this draft will maybe tell you a little bit of something about that. Even though I think it'll be more defensive-oriented, what happens draft day and a little afterwards? Normally, that's when a free agent will say, okay, hey, coach, I think I'm good in your offense. Let's, let's roll with it. And I do they add more of a speed element right. to this offensive team at wide receiver? Because now I can get that guy deep downfield. I've got a guy that can get it deep downfield. Drew used to be able to do it, okay? He did it with Devery. He did it with Robert Meacham. But again, for all the time, take that away from you. Now you got a guy that can do it. So, um, Mo Pau Gay, I think that she, I think she's absolutely right. 
and I do think, Scott, it's the biggest intrigue of 2021, of the adjustment by Coach Payton to the talents of Jameis Winston. Great stuff from Mike Dettelier, our guest, ESPN1420.com. Part one of our conversation with Mike, we're going to wrap it up now here. Focus was on the Saints. He will be back tomorrow, and we'll chat about best player in the draft and local products out of UL, Elijah Mitchell, Trey Regis, Jamar Chase out of LSU. We'll dig into all of that tomorrow with Mike in the 7 a.m. hour. Mike, thanks for talking to us this morning, and I look forward to talking more draft with you tomorrow. The Mike Dettelier Draft Report, you can get it now. Follow him at MikeDettelier.com. Go to Mike Dettelier, uh, excuse me, at Mike Dettelier on Twitter, MikeDettelier.com as well. You can learn where you can get that thing. Mike, let's, uh, let's talk some more draft tomorrow, man. Looking forward to it. My pleasure. Looking forward to it also.